Welcome back. You are listening to the Mideast Beast podcast. That's right. We've taken it from online to radio waves. Wow, we're really advancing ourselves. I'm Molly Livingstone, a comedian living here in Jerusalem. And of course, my co-host in London, Alex Giles. Good morning, Molly. How are you? Good morning. Well, it's morning for you, sir. But for me, my stomach tells me it's already lunchtime. (laughs) I'm great. I'm glad to hear that you're safe. Hashtag uh, British people reeling. I think that was what John Oliver was talking about. That was a great, great thing. Yeah, Yeah, that's a great sketch you did. You know, thank God for the Brits because we do satire at Mideast Beast and the Brits just do it so well. They don't miss a beat And when they saw the way the media coverage was covering what is a horrific event, I don't think anyone would deny that. But of course, they like to blow things up, let's say. No, it's it's the bad guys that like to blow things up. Let's be clear about (laughs) this. So the media, uh, well, you could debate if the media is the bad guy or the good guy, but you know. If you're in the White House, I understand that, Molly. Yeah, you would have that opinion. (laughs) Yep. So the hashtag came out of this concept of reeling and London under siege as though, all right, it was bad, but let's keep things in perspective. And I think that's what the Mideast Beast also does. I mean, people you know, need this satire to sort of cope with the reality of the world. And you need that perspective, something that, again, President Trump displayed his his lack of as he tore into our uh, our shockingly Muslim mayor, Sadiq Khan. Just hilarious. I don't know Mr. Khan personally, for those that don't know the, the mayor of London. He, he happens to be Muslim. As far as I can understand what, what that actually means for me personally, uh, he doesn't drink, so I don't know how much fun or he might be at parties. None. None. Um, <laughs> but that's, you know, that's fine. Uh, doesn't eat bacon, so more for me, so that's good. And apart from that, he's a pretty refreshingly boring uh, you know, mayor of London, just sort of doing his thing. But of course, Trump can't stand that idea, so we have all these tweets going back and forth. And uh, Right, yeah. of course. Yeah, well, I mean... He- I think any anyone would be considered boring after the previous mayor, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Boris Johnson over there, dear Boris, now mm-hmm. our foreign secretary. So uh, wow, just uh, gets better then. It just it just goes to show that there is no height that mediocrity can't get you to. So there's yeah, hope, and there's of hope course. For all of us. Before that, you know, I have my last name, Livingstone, and and my family, believe it or not, is British. And so we got a lot of the the mayor, Ken Livingstone, who was really quite a piece of work as well. Uh, And so I always had to say, I'm not related. I'm not related. But let's talk about satire and what the Mideast Beast put out this week, which you can, of course, find on Facebook and Twitter and the website. Which do you want to go first with, Alex? Do you want to talk about poor Miss Griffin? Or... Let's talk about Miss Griffin. All right. What, what, one of our great writers, uh, Bella Boop, <laughs> not her real name, but uh, we... Won't... And not to be confused with Betty Boop, of and course. And not to be confused. Well, yeah, not to be confused. I mean, we won't, we won't unmask her. Uh, she wrote a great article that's uh, doing really well this week, all about this, the idea that, that ISIS mistakenly takes responsibility for decapitating Trump. <laughs> and for those that have been living in a cave this week, this is all about uh, young Kathy Griffin. I'm not quite sure what she was promoting in this in this photo spread that she did. I I'm, I'm guessing she has like a Netflix show or something that she was promoting. But she was holding up this bloody Trump head and was clearly shocked and horrified when that actually had some sort of reaction. 
Tell me what what you think, Molly. I mean, was she was was she right to be surprised that there would be a, a backlash against this? I think yes and no because we see the ever you know the changing and how it's working and the bits of censorship that are taking place and how Trump has an ego and nobody wants their ego bruised when they have that big of an ego. So I think she took a risk and I think that's what comedians do and mm-hmm. I think that's what satire is all about. Mm-hmm. And it did not pay off because there's always this fine line in comedy of what's done in good enough taste that we allow it, mm-hmm. even a rape joke for people, mm-hmm. and the point where that's just wrong, he's a sitting president and no matter how much we are disgusted with whatever comes out of his mouth next, that's not appropriate. And she said also, by the way, as being a woman, it was easier to point the finger. So that's an interesting, like, added. Uh, she's lost a lot of business. She says her whole career is going to... And this is, like, a woman that's had a career based off the fact that she's a D-list comedian. Yep. And run with that. And so now it's like, well, I don't even... F, G, H, I don't even know how low you go. But there is a point, apparently, where it's too low to actually use it to boost your career. From my, my position, I, I thought that, that the mistake she made was, frankly, was apologising in the way that she did afterwards. You can mm-hmm. look at the original piece of art, let's say, and if she had been an artist and this had been done and, and in that way, maybe it wouldn't have... Well, she wouldn't have felt possibly the need to apologise in the way that she did. And for those that have, have, haven't have seen the um, the apology that was that was recorded when she went to her law firm... Uh, I, I recommend that for anyone in the business to demonstrate how not to do it, <laughs> I think. Because A, you know, you should sort of stand by the principle and just... There, there's a a way of explaining what she was doing. You know, she was talking about how I'm uh, the, the head represents the idea of Trump and I'm cutting off the, the head of Trumpism. I'm not suggesting for one moment that I'm going to do harm to the president. And I think that most sensible people could separate those two things personally. Right. And I think the idea of, of representing an idea, be it capitalism, communism, whatever it might be, and, and personifying it is a very accepted comedic satire idea that's been going for a, you know, a very long time. When she started tearfully saying that this, this had ruined her and Trump had destroyed her, I mean, it was... It had echoes, of course, of uh, ironically, of Trump at the speech he made at the Coast Guard when he said that there'd never been such a witch hunt ever. And it had, it was to me, it was ironic that these two people coming from very different ends of the spectrum had such a sort of big opinion of themselves that they felt that they were therefore at this sort of the, the, the heart of this perfect storm rather than in both cases, well, in one case being, as you say, a D-list celebrity and in the other case being a, a D-list property investor. So, yeah, I think, <laughs> yeah, there's some, there's some irony there. So I like the part in the story, really the last line, when the ISIS guy is saying, using a fake head is so immature <laughs> and just so wrong. What was she thinking? So there is, I mean, you got to go with it. And she used a really bloody uh, fake head. She did, and I don't think she can use the excuse that she didn't know what she was doing. This was a professional photograph, uh, photography shoot, uh, would have taken, you know, a day to put together. I mean, clearly someone had come up with the concept. As always, you know, it, it's not the crime, it's the cover-up. So it's it's not the act, it's the apology, which really extends this more than one news cycle. And I think that, to me, was the issue. 
I'm so like, I'm looking at the picture now and it, it is pretty creepy. I'm also thinking from a Middle East perspective, what would be more offensive? The fact that she's mocking sort of ISIS Trump or she's a woman. It's interesting that um, I don't think anyone picked up on the is she mocking ISIS. I didn't make that connection. I, I don't know, Molly. Did lots of people make that? Was that was that her sort of excuse? Was that the point of it? I don't think it was. No, it wasn't the point. It's just I am in Israel, and so we make fun of ISIS here, mm-hmm. and it's obviously allowed. Whether or not it's in good taste, bad taste, humor is subjective, and we get all kinds of opinions. So just thinking from that Middle Eastern perspective, how would they react? Not just the world's reaction, America's reaction, or the White House reaction, but really from a Middle Eastern perspective, is it more offensive that a woman comedian is taking the stance, you know, as a woman? Is it more offensive that, you know, the people that support ISIS, which obviously is a good enough amount that they have that support? Mm-hmm. Or do they care even about Trump, really? Do they hate him as much as it seems like the rest of the world does? This is one of these these storms that only really secure first world countries can have and be fussed mm. about for any length of time. You know, if you're sitting in uh, in Syria in the midst of all, all of that horror, you would look at this if you had the chance to look at this and you would you would really say, what on earth are you all talking about? And what on earth are you, you know, are both sides of this thinking this is the worst thing that could have happened to them all day? It's, it's one of the um, privileges of a first world country that you can even make this a story, I guess. Yeah. Although we don't know where things will go because as it seems to be unraveling and there is more and more censorship and how she did feel like it was a witch hunt that the president of the United States of America can take time to destroy her career. We don't know where we're going. I mean, you see North Korea all the time. Mm -hmm. He had like an ex-girlfriend who was in porn and uh, she, she was killed. You know, to waste that kind of time with people is something one of those big, scary dictators do. Let's talk about the other story, mm-hmm. ISIS to join Paris Climate Accord. <laughs> this is a great headline. And again, one of those that you might go, wait, is that real? Did they do that? Are they taking over? Yeah, yeah. well, this is this is from Roger Pumper. Um, you know, Roger is, uh, I think, after me, our longest serving writer. He's been with us almost since the start of the website, just consistently writes super stuff, much to my annoyance, of course, because... Uh, he is, he is funnier than I am, which is a bit upsetting, but that's, that's just the way it goes. And yes, this is, you know, the, the, clearly the, the, the big proper story. And we, we've just talked about Cathy uh, Griffin, and that's kind of, I think, a bit of a storm in a teacup. But the idea of, of the US pulling out or Trump pulling out of the Paris Climate Accord, something that only Syria and uh, Nicaragua don't agree with. And Nicaragua only doesn't agree with it because they don't think it went far enough. And Syria, I understand, had other things on its mind when this was going on. So both of those, fair, fair enough. Trump has decided that the US uh, should pull out as well. I recommend, just as an aside, uh, John Oliver, his weekly show did a fantastic piece on this, which I, I really recommend you go onto YouTube and watch John Oliver's take on this. It is brilliant. Maybe we can get him on the show one day. But, oh, uh, oh, oh, that would be awesome. That would be what awesome. That would be a coup. But Roger, Roger Pumper has written this, this great thing, you know, about the idea of, of ISIS looking at this and, and saying, look, you know, you know, if we're going to carry on our work, we need a planet to work on. And this is just a ridiculous thing. And I, on the comments section on the website, we talked about this last time, people, people taking this seriously. 
Uh, and a number of people started writing, you know, it's nonsense that ISIS are more environmentally concerned than President Trump. <laughs> uh, and, and I just thought, oh, this is why we do what it we hurts. do. It hurts. It hurts. I, I don't know from, you know, there in the Middle East, what sort of coverage this got, the, the Paris Climate Accords and America pulling out. I don't know, but I thought when I read the Trump headline, see, I thought that was the satire. Again, it's so <laughs> scary where the two worlds are becoming more and more mixed. And then I read this one, and just like the other readers, it could have a bit of truth. If Trump, as the American president, can pull out of these accords, then why can't ISIS, as the world's you know leading terrorists, work on climate change as part of their plan? Like, can't that just be part of getting rid of the infidels? Well, you know, you, you're going to have to burn a lot of coal. <laughs> to... no, you're burning a lot of people. You just add a little coal to it, you know. But then again, there have been some fantastic comments from, I know we're going to sound like we're piling on, but normally Republican <laughs> senators and state senators, and one of them memorably saying that it was uh, a large part of it was that human bodies were hot. And this was uh, a cause of, <laughs> of climate change, that it was all of us being warm that did it and and again it's back to that thing we talked about last time that when you've got people saying things like that deadly in a deadly serious way how on earth can satire still exist it's the old thing of when when kissinger won the nobel peace prize satire died i forget who said that but that's a <laughs> Well, I think that it always boils down to sex and power. And that line just shows you if all the bodies are hot, that guy's just looking to get laid. I mean, <laughs> if he sees every single person is hot, I will show him some people that on hot or not are definitely in the not section. But <laughs> for him, clearly, we've all got potential, which I guess is uh, empowering in one way. But I think when you read the article and they talk about not leaving the footprint, right, the mm -hmm. carbon footprint, mm -hmm. see, that's where I say, oh, no, not ISIS. They would leave a footprint, a bloody <laughs> handprint. They'd leave OJ's glove. You know what I mean? It's just like they wouldn't consider it on those grounds. The beheading and the drowning as opposed to the, you know, doing anything else to kill people, maybe that's more believable. And they do have plenty of ways that they put people in cages and they do decapitate. And maybe they'll get some tips from Kathy now since she clearly is going to be out of a job. Kathy, there is all the opportunity that she could do infomercials for ISIS. Uh, I hope that she doesn't doesn't drop that far down, <laughs> down, down the ratings that that's something that she looks ISIS, at. ISIS, just kill it. Yeah. <laughs> is Kathy Jewish? I don't think she's Jewish. I don't know. You have to quick, quick look at Wikipedia. That makes like an extra added element to this matrix. We're going to have to wrap things up on is she Jewish? I guess we'll have to savor that one for another podcast. We'll cover that next week. Very important issue. She'll have done something crazy by that point if she's smart enough. No more weak videos of apology. That is not empowering or ISIS of you, Kathy. And if you're going to represent ISIS from this point out, you better start thinking how to uh, strengthen up the game there. Alex, thank you so much. Always a pleasure. It was great speaking. And of course, you can find us online, SoundCloud Mideast Beast Podcast and Facebook, Mideast Beast. And what's the Twitter one again? Mideast Beasties. Mideast Beasties. Yeah, hashtag Mideast Beasties. That's going to wrap up this part of the program. And coming up next, we are going to talk to gay rights activist Sarah Weil from Jerusalem. Stick with us.
And now we are on the line with Sarah Weil. She is Development Director and Director of Yerushalmi Movement and Meeting Place and Director of the Women's Gathering Movement. And she is a gay rights activist here in Jerusalem. So we have the Tel Aviv Pride Parade coming up in Israel. We thought this would be perfect time to talk about the gays. Uh, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Molly. <laughs> Happy to represent the gays. Yeah, all of them. You have to represent all of them. So I, I, I okay, think it's an impossible it. task. So I've failed already. Oh man! Well, that's good. We'll, we'll Failures do the, we'll are do the best we can. Yeah, and Alex, of course, you're in London, so you're going to chime in, ask some questions too about. Yes. The key- yeah, and I, I'm I'm representing all the middle-aged white men. So, you know, I really think we've got a really diverse group here, which is fantastic. I mean, and, and Molly will just represent all Americans of American heritage. How dare right? you? I don't know. I'm a big old mess. I can represent the, uh, <laughs> the confused. You, can take, you take up the slack, Molly. You yes. just represent everyone else that Sarah and I aren't covering. These identity politics are very confusing, so maybe we'll we'll just represent ourselves. How's that? That's a pretty radical idea. Let's do that. See, this is why she's the activist. And I just want to say that (laughs) Sarah does speak for conflict transformation and the intersection of LGBT and religion. Uh, She was recently chosen by Yediot Achronot as one of the top 50 social change agents of Israel for 2016. She was selected by a wider bridge as one of the top 10 Israeli LGBT activists to watch in 2017. So here we are, we're watching you. Tell us a little bit about what you do primarily in Jerusalem, which is not really thought of as the most gay-friendly city in the world, although compared to the rest of the Middle East, we still might get like one thumbs up. What do you think, Sarah? Tell us from your perspective. Well, I work for a, an organization called the Yushami Movement, which was founded in 2009 to create Jerusalem as a pluralistic city home to all of its residents, all the people that live here. And I joined in 2015 uh, after the stabbing and murder of Shirabanki in the Gay Pride Parade here in Jerusalem. That was a big change moment for me in the way that I approach LGBT activism um, and social engagement in general. Uh, I've been an LGBT activist for many, many years in Jerusalem, was religious, still am religious actually, and and have basically been trying to integrate these two identities of both being lesbian and, and religious. And in 2015, I, I took to the streets. I took to the streets with a big gay flag with a big Jewish star on it. I really didn't know what else to do. It was a very traumatic event. I was close to the stabbing. And my response to that trauma was to go to go to the public square. And I went to Zion Square. I stood there with the flag basically saying, Hineni, this is who I am. I can't stop being religious. I can't stop being gay. And I'm not going to stop. And Jerusalem is my home, and I refuse to give it up. And... What happened to me as I was standing there really changed my life. I met um, over the course of seven days because the Rushami movement decided to have a public Shiva mourning period for Shirabanki. And I was there for seven days and I spoke to, at the end, about hundreds of people I spoke to. And most of them religious and also ultra-Orthodox. And what I found over and over again is that conversations that started out with hostility with uh, slogans, with, you know, things like, you're disgusting, you're an abomination, you're desecrating the holiness of the city. They ended not with agreement, but with mutual respect. And that experience in those seven days made me very, I guess, committed to this day, to the idea that in order to really bridge the gaps between people who live in very different worlds, I mean, here in Jerusalem, it's so 
apparent that people live in such different worlds. We live right next to each other, but we're living in totally different worlds. And in order to bridge those gaps, we need to meet each other face to face. And so that's what I'm mostly engaged in today. I run Dialogue Circles in Zion Square every Thursday night. We have a big gay flag out there, but our topics are on any topic that is affecting Israeli society. It's not a gay program exclusively. It's really for everybody. And our goal is to create a safe space where, safe space, it's not a safe space. It's to create a brave space. Mm. It's to create a brave space where people can go outside of themselves, outside of their comfort zones, and meet people who are different from them that challenge their their ideas, that challenge their views, even challenge their values. Sarah, I want to ask you a question because you're talking about brave space and you're talking about Israel and religion. And at the Mideast Peace, we're sort of following like all of the Mideast. Do you think you could do that same thing? And would you, have you already considered it, going to places like Egypt, uh, Lebanon, Jordan, the other countries that make up the, you know, Middle East, Saudi Arabia, would you consider Can doing the same thing? Countries? Yeah. I, am, I, am I allowed in those with an Israeli passport? Well, let's say you have your American passport. Let's say <laughs> in a theoretical place. And space? Can you make a uh, look, brave space? I'm happy. Right, right now, we're, we're developing the project as a model. And we're hoping that the model will be able to be taken to any square, any public square in any city, and be integrated there with the particular population and the, the issues that that population is facing to kind of transform the public space into a place of meeting. So, yeah, wherever they invite me, I'll go. Happy to. Okay, so I said at the top that the Tel Aviv Gay Pride Parade is going to be taking place here in Israel. We're recording beforehand. But you as a gay rights activist who has made so much change in Jerusalem, and Tel Aviv is considered one of the gay-friendliest cities in the world, not just the Middle East, which probably clearly it is as well. And you said to me off-air, and I'd like to get the answer on-air, you will not be attending out of principle. So tell us a little bit why. Well, first of all, I think that gay pride parades in general, we have a lot of thanks to give them for raising visibility, LGBT visibility in our culture. You know, 15 years ago, the Haredi world didn't have a word for gay or lesbian. It, it didn't exist in their vocabulary. And that's the 15, ultra 20, orthodox. Years ago. That's the ultra-Orthodox community. Mm -hmm. And because of gay pride parades, because of the incredible press coverage and the confrontation that is involved in it and, and, and all of that, it, it brings this discourse into the public consciousness. And that has enabled these words to enter into the ultra-Orthodox world. So now, whereas if 20 years ago, there's no such thing as a gay person in our society, today there's an acknowledgement that there are gay people which is huge progress. I mean, some people don't think that, think of that as progress, but progress is always relational, right? It's always contextual. You have to see what it's what it progress from. And yes. in the ultra-Orthodox world, that is tremendous progress. And so yeah. I believe that, that, that gay pride parades are super important for that reason. But here's the now, dumping part of it. But, right? <laughs> I like you, but. But over the years, I think that as I've come to accept myself more and more, as I've, I've done a lot of work on my own shame. Um, I had to work through a lot of shame, you know, being gay, growing up gay and feeling like I don't belong anywhere, feeling like I'm not accepted for who I am, feeling like I'm not seen for who I am, feeling that I just can't be me. Um, there's a tremendous amount of shame associated with that. And when people live in shame about who they are, about the basic way that they relate to other human beings, like sexuality is something, it's not just physical, right? Sexuality mm -hmm. is something that, that is part of who we are. It's part of our personality, how we relate 
to, to the people that we love, also on the emotional level, the intellectual level, the spiritual level. So I lived with so much shame for so long. And, and when you live in such shame, the only way for you to be able to express yourself is often in a way that is unhealthy. You're trying to, to like keep yourself from doing what you're, what you're ashamed about, but it comes out in one way or another. And that's what, what gay culture really allowed me. Gay culture, you know, the, the nightclubs with, with you know, the, the heavy music and, and the drugs and the drinking and all of that stuff um, and the promiscuity, with all of that, it, it allowed me to just kind of release and allowed me to express myself and just be gay. But it came with all of this negativity. It came with all of these things that, that I don't want in my life. I don't, I don't want that kind of culture. I'm also religious, and I live by my religious values. I live by my value of family. I want to build, I want to build my family. I want to build a future with my family. Also, modesty. Modesty is important to me. This kind of like rampant promiscuity and the way of kind of looking at sexuality is being almost kind of like through a pornographic view. I think that's a, that's a big problem. And that doesn't represent who I am. It doesn't represent my sexuality. And I feel like gay culture has kind of elevated that form of sexual expression to its highest value. And this year, for, for the Gay Pride Parade in, in Tel Aviv, their video that they produced is filled with that. I watched the video, and, I, and you know, my, my initial response was this feeling of nausea. Right? It's, of course, personal, right? My personal response. And the nausea came from really kind of remembering that trauma of those years. And I realized that I've, I've grown to, the, to this point now in my life where that's not the kind of culture that I want to build. I'm a, I'm a gay person, I'm a lesbian, and that's not my culture. And you know what? I should be allowed to say that without repercussions, without the feeling that I'm going to be excommunicated from the LGBT community because I've, said, I've spoken, you know, I've criticized the gay pride parade. So that's really where I'm coming from. And this is actually why I relate to the parade in Jerusalem so much more. Because the parade in Jerusalem is not a parade. It is a march. It is a human rights march. We don't have floats. We don't have massive parties. You know, there aren't tons of, like, you know, almost naked people walking around. It is, it is a human rights march with families and all different kinds of people with the goal of really raising awareness. Right. There's also um, a lot of religious people. There's a lot of gay religious organizations that do that march. I don't mean to cut you off. I know we're limited on time and you're off to Tel Aviv for a conference that I think also has to do with gay rights. And I want to give Alex a question since he's been such a good boy waiting nicely on the other side representing the um, <laughs> older white man. So Alex, did you want to just ask her before she goes off to her busy day being a director of everything? I suppose a couple of things. It's great to, to hear that the LGBT has uh, matured enough to have internal... Uh, factions even which makes you very middle eastern so you know <laughs> kudos to that i mean that that's great to see it must mean you're becoming pretty pretty mainstream but i just wondered what do you think of the irony that you managed to actually unite one of the things that unites extremist on both sides of the of the jewish and muslim spectrum because both sides of that extremist end think that you are wrong think that you you are a said you said yourself an abomination or or evil i mean the irony of that seems to me to be quite quite strong. Yeah, I mean, it is pretty ironic, but I, I, don't, I don't stop with that because I don't believe that it is inevitably so. Just as this issue can be a point of uniting religious communities against, 
it can also be a point of uniting religious communities for. It can be a positive unification. And, and I believe that in order to do that, we need to, and this is the work that I'm engaged in every day, um, and there are organizations here in Israel, Chavruta, Batkol, Shoval, other organizations that are working with the Orthodox world. I believe we have to work with the Orthodox world, not against them, work within the Orthodox world to open up compassion and open up acceptance. I see over and over and over again, I meet ultra-Orthodox people in Zion Square every Thursday night, and I see over and over again that their, their anger, even their hatred, almost always stems from ignorance. They've never met a gay person before. And when they meet me, when they look at me in the eye and they have a conversation with me, that humanizes the issue. And that changes them. It changes them fundamentally. They can't look at it anymore as an idea because they have a human being that's connected to it. I really think that it's hard work. It takes a long time. And for activists, you know, generally, uh, activists like results, right? We like revolution. Revolution is something that happens instantaneously. But revolution is not going to work in this case. The only, and, I, and I also believe this from a religious perspective in terms of kind of redemption and, and bringing the redemption of the world. It's that everybody has to come along. No one can be left behind. And if no one's left behind, that means that we all have to do it together. So rejecting you know, a whole sector of Israeli society or any you know, one group rejecting another group and saying you know, they should be thrown into the dustbin of history, they're, they're lost. I think that that's a mistake. And I think that we have to work with each community on their own terms and in their own language and be patient. This is a huge thing, patience. I really, really believe that if we're patient and if we stay true to who we are, and that goes for both LGBT people, LGBTQ people, and also for religious people, I think that we'll be able to move forward. And you know what? Another thing, I not only feel like I'm able to kind of open the eyes of religious people in Zion Square. I learned something too. I learned something about myself. I learned about the value of piety. Well, not necessarily from them, but from the religious world in general. I learned, I learned other values from the re religious world that I need for myself. So I feel like if we can come from the perspective of, instead of name calling, you know, like you're an abomination and on the other side, you're bigoted or you're homophobic, leave that name calling aside and come together and meet as people. Um, I really believe with patience that we'll slowly start to see the change. Well, I and love that. Seeing it. I love that you uh, want Israelis to be patient. That's like the hardest thing that we could do. But we will try and the Middle East will try. I want to thank you so much, Sarah Weil. How can people learn more about what you are doing, all your different movements, and get in touch if they're interested? Well, they can definitely contact me via email. My email is Sarah, S-A-R-A-H, at Yerushalmit. Y-E-R-U-S-H-A-L-M-I-T dot org dot I-L. Um, you can also find me on Facebook, Sarah Weil, W-E-I-L. And maybe they can just contact you and you guys can uh, connect us. That's exactly what I want. More people I don't want to talk to. I have to talk. No, just kidding. Okay, and a final question. Now you're a talker, so this is going to be your, uh, you know, you want people to be patient, and I want you to give me a yes or no. Ready? This is the last question. You can't elaborate. We don't so far have civil marriage in Israel. Do you think we will eventually have gay marriage? Yes or no? And she laughed. 
I can't give you a yes or no. I'm sorry. It's much more complicated. You see that? You see that? Hey, if you want us to be patient, (laughs) you got to give us a yes or no. (laughs) I think we will eventually have civil marriage in this country, and I think that within civil marriage will be included gay marriage. And like a desperate dater, I would take that as a yes. So I want to thank you so much. Keep doing what you're doing. More power to you. Let's get us all together in one big happy rainbow, just like on your flag. (laughs) Thanks, Molly. Thank you, Sarah. Really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. And that wraps it up for the Mideast Beast podcast. Find us once again online. Share your comments. Who do you want to hear from? What do you want to say? What is happening with satire? And will it go away? Long pause. Look at my producer, Scott Kahn. Thank you so much for making this happen. Uh, Yeah, he's the the behind-the-scenes editor. And, of course, Alex, thank you for being in London, staying safe. I get to say that from Israel. Another episode of Mid-East Beast Podcast. Share your thoughts online with us.